Hello, everybody. It's great to be able to provide you with a sermon relating to the Feast of Tabernacles that we're now keeping. Uh, having had to spend feast days at home myself because of sickness, I can appreciate the fact that you're able to have videos or uh, sermons online like this today. Uh, in years gone by, they weren't available. So it's a privilege for me to be able to bring you a sermon uh, to help you feel that you are part of God's Feast of Tabernacles at this point in time. So let me begin by saying welcome to the feast uh, as you join with you, your other brethren around the world in keeping this wonderful time. David, king over Israel made a comment about the Feast of Tabernacles, but he expressed it in a different manner. I'd like to start this morning by reading a psalm of David, Psalm 27. Because David longed to live in the house of God all his life. It wasn't a reality for him at that point, It was something that he desired to aspire to because the temple or the house of God had not been built at that point. We appreciate, of course, that David spent a lot of time preparing for the uh, building of a house. But that ultimately was uh, devolved to his son or delegated to his son, uh, Solomon. But David expressed this great desire as he expressed here in Psalm 27. And I'd like you to pick it up in verse 4. He said, One thing I have desired of the eternal, that will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the eternal all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the eternal, to inquire in his temple. For in the time of trouble, He will hide me in his pavilion. In the secret place of his tabernacle, he shall hide me. He shall set me high upon a rock. And so this was an aspiration of David. A beautiful psalm, one that is very uh, meaningful to me, because in days gone by, as part of a men's uh, ensemble, we sang parts of these words. And a very, very powerful, very, very inspirational uh, section of scripture. But I'd like you to think about this. In fact, if you want a title for my sermon, it's simply to dwell in the house of God forever. David's aspiration to dwell in God's house should be your aspiration, my aspiration. In fact, all of God's people's aspirations. We should desire that. The church in Philadelphia, Revelation chapter 3, is promised to be temple, or pillars rather, in the temple of God. Consider that. If you're going to be a pillar in the temple of God, where are you going to be all the days of your life? To be part of the very structure of the temple of God. Part of a structure that gives shape and form to the very building 
that David was desirous to be part of. So the Church of Philadelphia is promised to be pillars, part of a very structure of the temple of God. And so we can automatically, if we are Philadelphians, we can see ourselves being part of that house, to dwell in that house forever. It's interesting as well because oftentimes when we talk about Laodicea, it's we're focusing on the shortcomings of Laodicea. But Laodicea is told a few verses later, to him that overcomes, to the Laodicean who overcomes and who actually becomes part of the family of God, what is their reward? It is also to be part of the house of God or the the temple of God. Laodicea offered a place on Christ's throne if they overcome, if they prepare themselves for that great event. And, of course, the same proviso is true of Philadelphia. To those that overcome in Philadelphia, they will be part of a structure. To the Laodiceans who overcome, they will be part of Christ's throne at the very center of the government of this universe and a very, very powerful place for them to be. But the end result for both Philadelphia and Laodicea is they're going to dwell in the temple of God forever, just as David desired to do, and just as David will do as part of the very government of God. So Paul tells us that the church, that we as part of our Father's church, are being built up as a very temple of God. Notice that in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 22. And so Paul tells them, and he tells us by extension, Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. We're part of the household of God, and we'll be part of his family. Why? Because in verse 20 it tells us we've been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. We're built on that. And of course this is a wonderful scripture which has great application in terms of our understanding of the Bible. But it means that you and I live our lives in accordance with God's word. And it is God's word which dictates how we live our lives, not the society that is around us. And so he says in verse 21, he continues in verse 21 by saying, In whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom also you are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. So here we are at this point in time as we're preparing for the establishment of the kingdom of God. As we look forward to the return of Jesus Christ, you and I have the opportunity of being prepared as part of the very temple of God. So that eventually 
we can dwell in the house of God forever. So what is then required of you and me to fulfill that longing that David expressed so eloquently in Psalm 27? Let's go back to a scripture which speaks very much of this period of time, the Feast of Tabernacles, Zechariah 14. Obviously, this is a scripture which speaks directly to the world tomorrow. And picking it up in verse 16, we're talking about the Feast of Tabernacles time and the keeping of the Feast of Tabernacles in the kingdom of God in that period of time that we refer to as a millennium. And uh, this is focused on the millennium because we still have physical nations in, in existence at that point in time. So uh, the earlier verses of chapter 1 talk about the return of Jesus Christ, some of those climactic events that take place at his return. And then in verse 16, we move on into the keeping of the Feast of Tabernacles under the government of God with Jesus Christ situated in Jerusalem. And so verse 16 says, It shall come to pass that everyone who is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to worship the King, the Eternal of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. So here we're given a view of the world tomorrow in which all nations come to Jerusalem to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. And they come to Jerusalem not just to eat and drink as part of a Feast of Tabernacles, but they come to worship the King, the Eternal of Hosts. And so we find Jesus Christ, Revelation chapter 11, verses 15 through the end of a chapter. We find him being the one who is described as being King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He is the one who is going to be ruling and it is to him that these nations come, and at the same time to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. It's rather interesting because the word worship in this case is a particular Hebrew word. It's a word which describes the way in which worship should be undertaken. Now, in our world today, when people use the word worship in religious sense, Frequently, it conveys the idea of entertain me. That's what's involved. Entertain me. But not this particular word. There is no entertainment value in this word which is translated worship in Zechariah chapter 14 and verse 16. Because you see, the Hebrew word that is translated as worship means to prostrate yourself. In other words, you're flat on the floor before the king. You're at his mercy. I had an occasion on one uh, visit to Africa to be taken before a tribal king, the king of Badajri in, in Nigeria. And that was a real experience for me. Uh, taken into a Western-style house, into a very large room, and the king had a throne. He was had a very large carved chair on top of a dais. And before him in the room, there were uh, chairs on one side of the room to which I was uh, escorted. 
And uh, his brother, who had been part of a party that brought me to meet the king, was flat on his face on the floor before the king. It wasn't a polite bow or anything of that nature. This man, his brother in fact, was on his face, totally on the floor, spread-eagled on the floor before his brother. And others who came into the room, who were not part of a court, did likewise. As a foreigner, as not, as not being a subject of the king, uh, I wasn't required to do it. So uh, I didn't have to uh, get myself uh, onto the floor and so on. But you see, that man's brother prostrated himself before his own brother. And it's a very, very powerful uh, picture in my mind of what is involved here when it talks about them coming to worship the king. It's not coming to some futuristic Disneyland type experience of the world tomorrow. It is coming to prostrate yourself, to show your fealty and your obedience to the man who sits upon the throne, Jesus Christ. And it portrays that, and it's very important for us to understand, because for us to be part of his kingdom, for us to dwell in his house, we are called to do that now, to submit ourselves totally to him. And of course, we read the rest of this chapter. It shall be that, uh, verse 17, it shall be that whichever of the families of the earth do not come up to Jerusalem, to worship the king. So once again, you know, this aspect of worship is very important, of prostrating yourself, humbling yourself before the king. Uh, Isaiah 65 talks about, to which man will I look? To him who is of a meek and contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. That is the type of worship that the eternal is seeking and will seek from these people who come up to Jerusalem. Not for his own ego's sake, but rather to see that these people are willing to align themselves with the way of God, that they're prepared to submit themselves to the way of God and live that way because it will bring the desired results that our Father wants from his creation. And so the nation doesn't come up and says, I'm not going to get my clothes dirty lying on the floor in front of Jesus Christ. I'm not going to spend all that time and all of that effort going to Jerusalem. I'm not going to prostrate myself before Jesus Christ. He said, on them there will be no rain. Rain is very important. And so he gives us an example. He said, if the family of Egypt will not come up and enter in, they shall have no rain, and they shall receive the plague with which the eternal strikes the nations who do not come up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. And so this will be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all nations, large or small, that do not come up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. In other words, there is a requirement to do it. So this aspect of worship, coming to Jerusalem to worship the Eternal, is about prostrating yourself before the Eternal, being totally submissive to the wills, the desires of Jesus Christ and the Father. Very important.
Uh, oftentimes the word worship is used throughout the Bible, and one of the other Hebrew words that is translated as worship is to serve. It's derived from the same word that we would take servant. And it goes back to the very first responsibility given to humanity in Genesis chapter 2, where it said the Eternal took the man and placed him in the Garden of Eden to tend and to keep it. He was to serve the garden and to guard the garden. That's really what the root of those words that are translated as tend and watch mean. And so this aspect of servanthood becomes very important in terms of our actions towards the eternal. Who do we serve? In this case, a stronger word than serve is used of prostrating yourself. And of course, the idea of prostrating yourself shows that you are totally at the mercy, totally at the uh, purposes of the one before whom you have been prostrated. So uh, very important for us to understand what is going on in this particular chapter. Notice verse 20. Verse 20, because this part of Zechariah 14 talks about those of us who have qualified to be part of a house of the eternal, to be pillars in the temple of God, or to be seated with Christ in his throne as part of his government system. It said in verse 20, in that day, holiness to the eternal will be engraved on the bells of the horses. The pots in the eternal's house shall be like the bowls before the altar. Yes, every pot in Jerusalem and Judah will be holiness to the eternal of hosts. And so he goes on and talks about the sacrificing and the cooking and so forth in uh, that particular time. In other words, Everything that is part of the temple of God. Everything that is part of not just the temple of God, but even of all of Jerusalem. All that is there supporting the government of God is going to be set apart for the eternal's purposes, for Christ's purposes. And so it talks about holiness to the eternal being engraved on the bells of the horses. That was engraved on the nameplate, on the uh, headpiece of the high priest in the tabernacle of uh, built by Moses. So Aaron, when he was arrayed in his priestly garments, had a golden plate on his mitre, on his turban or his headpiece, which said holiness to the eternal, because the high priest had to be holiness to be eternal. Now or in this day, in the world tomorrow, that will not just relate to the high priest. It will not just relate to the priests themselves. It will not relate to just those who are working in the temple, taking care of the physical needs. It will relate to everyone, including the animals in Jerusalem. So you might say, it applies to you and to me, if we're going to be part of it. We have to be set apart to the eternal, for the eternal service. And so there was a common cause, a total identification of what Jesus Christ 
is seeking to do. And what the Father is seeking to do through Jesus Christ in bringing his government to this earth and preparing the way for a great future that lies beyond the human dimension. And so, verse 20, verse 21 talks about this common cause. We're all devoted to Christ's purposes in a very, very powerful way. Now today, you and I live in a world in which individualism is glorified. We're very concerned about it. Uh, You may be a shut-in and unable to go out, but certainly if you turn your television on and you watch television programs, any of the sitcoms that exist, you'll find individualism. What people want for themselves is the motivation that exists. You read the news, you read what is happening in the world. Individualism is glorified. But our Father's way is not based on such an approach. Individualism, ultimately speaking, has no place in our Father's plan. The kingdom of God will not be about individuals. It will be about a family. It will be about a community. What we call today the church. It is a binding of people together. And that's what should define who I am, who you are, who we all are together. Who am I? I can give you all sorts of descriptions of who I am. But that's the wrong question. Ultimately speaking, it's what will I be? That's the important question. And that's where my focus should be. Not on who I am, but what I will be and what you will be in the family of God. What we will be is something very different than we are now. We suffer from problems of age or sickness and uh, disability in this day and age. We look forward to a time in which that won't be a feature anymore. None of us will be limited by our physical conditions anymore. Why? Because we seek to do the will of our Father and of the Son, Jesus Christ. And our identity is being part of his family to bring about the rule and the goals of our Father in that family. And that's an important point for us to consider because the greatest challenge we face as church members today is this aspect of identity. The greatest challenge that parents of young people face or parents-to-be face is the fact that children are going to be reared in an increasingly hostile way to the hostile world, rather, to the way of God. Very much, we should be under no illusions of that whatsoever. It is going to be a great challenge. 
if we as older people see young people in the church and newborn babies, I think we ought to be crying out to God for wisdom for the parents to be able to teach their children God's way of life. Because increasingly we're going to live in a world in which Satan is going to express his hostility to it. Let me give you an example. Iceland has outlawed circumcision. Now, Iceland really doesn't matter too much. It's a small nation. And I don't know how many Jews live in Iceland. And if they did, I guess most of them now fly off to Denmark or somewhere in Europe for the birth of a child and, of course, the circumcision of the son at the appropriate time. So circumcision has been outlawed in Iceland. And one wonders how long before the Sabbath is also ruled out, forbidden. And of Iceland, then what about other countries? Now, Iceland wasn't the first country to introduce this idea of banning circumcision. This has been mooted in Germany. It certainly did not get any traction at this point in time. But the fact is, it was raised. People want to see it abolished. Why? Why could people move against the Sabbath? Because they are identicators, they're indicators rather, of identity. They set that child apart from other children. And we live in a world where such identity is not accepted. We live in a world in which the individual is promoted, but is not an individual that can take the identity of the parent, for instance. And by being circumcised, a child without any consent whatsoever has taken on the identity of the parent. And the world is hostile to that. A child keeping the Sabbath takes on the identity of its parents. And the world is hostile to that in any way. Uh, One person writing on that talks about how this aspect of identity becomes an issue for us. And he talked about uh, the difference between history and memory. And he describes history as being the answer to the question, what happened? Memory, on the other hand, is an answer to the question, who am I? What am I? A potential member of the God family. Most importantly, he pointed out how that in a person who ends up with Alzheimer's, a very grievous disease, person loses their memory. They lose their identity. And so the same is true when it comes to a nation of the whole. It's almost as though we live in a world today in which we're getting national Alzheimer's disease. So we have no idea of who we are. We're wanting to lose that in a very, very sad way. When we come to the Feast of Tabernacles, when we come to uh, 
observing and reading these sections just as we have. We understand who we are. When Egypt or Assyria or Libya or the Moabites or the Ammonites or whoever it may be, the Babylonians, the Elamites, the Persians and so forth, when they come up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles, they identify who they are. And of course, it's not just, I'm a Persian, but I'm a Persian who's been called by God and I have a, the opportunity of being part of a kingdom of God. And I'm going to live the life that I need to live so that I can have that. Of course, coming to keep the feast, we have a context in which we can understand who we are in the present and how our identity leads us to our future. Very important. And this is why in Zechariah chapter 14, the eternal is so emphatic about the nations coming up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles, to submit themselves to the ways of the eternal God of Israel. The one we know is Jesus Christ, and the one they will know is Jesus Christ. And to his Father, they will be very much important. That's very much important for them. Because then they will realize they're not just the greatest power on earth for an X number of centuries. They have the opportunity of being called to be part of the very God family, to rule over this universe, and to look beyond the physical dimension of human life. And they'll be able to glory in that, just as you and I can today. It's rather interesting, if we go back over the last few hundred years, we look at how the world has come to the situation it finds itself in today. Western, the Western world, or the modern Western world, has been marked by two great events to escape from identity. The first in the 18th century was the European Enlightenment, came out of a Renaissance. It changed our total education system. It changed religion. It gave certain freedoms so that you and I can keep the Feast of Tabernacles today. Not because that was intended. You might say it was an unintended consequence of the Enlightenment. It provided freedom so that we can worship the eternal and the way in which we are today. But of course, the Enlightenment focused on two great principles, science and philosophy. And they thought the great thinkers who came out of the Enlightenment thought that science and philosophy would answer all of the great questions of humanity. But people don't like to be considered to be a relative of a monkey or an ape. It doesn't really fit very well. As so uh, science tried to establish laws that are, you might say, universally true. The problem is we keep on finding more information which changes the laws we thought were universally true. So science can't by itself establish universal laws. And philosophy aims at uh, disclosing universal structures of thought. 
But if you look back over the history of philosophy over the last three or four hundred years, you can write a book on the various philosophical approaches that people have followed. And they all end up in a cul-de-sac. They end up in a dead end. And people have got to backtrack and say, well, let's try another avenue. It's like trying to get out of a maze. They don't accomplish everything. So the uh, enlightenment sort of world without identify, uh, identities, in which we're all just human beings. But human beings can't live without identity. And surprise, surprise, identity is never universal. The Eternal did make different nations. He did make different tribes. And he knew the characteristics of those tribes in a remarkable way. And he wants us to be aware of that, very much aware of it. What makes us the unique person we are is what makes us different from people in general. Now that's a double-edged sword because it speaks to our past of who I am, but it also speaks to our future. And that's where our focus needs to be. What sort of person do I need to have? What sort of identity do I need to have to be able to dwell in the temple of God forever or the house of our eternal, as David said? Okay, so uh, the Enlightenment had great blind spots. They couldn't see the end result of their factor, of their uh, uh, processes. And so identity came racing back in the late 19th century and created the carnage that so many of us have witnessed in the 20th century, which has laid the seeds for carnage and so forth in the 21st century. So the late 19th century resurrected three ideas of identity, nation, race, class. And so we find in the 20th century, nationalism led to two world wars, and quite a remarkable uh, destruction of human beings. Racism led to the Holocaust and other such events around the world, and Marxist class warfare led eventually to Stalin with his genocide, the Gulag, the KJB, Mao Zedong, the Long March. You can uh, look at it. You can look back on history and see the carnage that has occurred in the last century as a result of people trying to make identities Make identities based on a wrong foundation, the not godly foundation. So since the 1960s, the West has been embarked on a second attempt to escape from identity in favor not of the universal but of the individual. In the belief that identity is something each of us create, freely creates for ourselves. That's why Iceland doesn't want to have circumcision, because that child has not been given the privilege to create its own identity. Its parents have imposed an identity on it. And as you hear these arguments being increased, you need to realize what's behind them. 
But you see, people don't make identities for themselves. You and I are in the process of making an identity for ourselves as a begotten member of a God's family. And how did it come about? Because we woke up some morning with a great idea, I'm going to serve God. No. Because we woke up one morning and realized that our Father was calling us into a relationship with him. And for us to have that relationship, we needed to repent, be baptized, and receive his Holy Spirit. You see, identity comes from outside. It's not something we generate within ourselves in any particular way. And each and every one of us, as we keep the Feast of Tabernacles, if we've been baptized, it is because we have been called, we've come to understand what our Father requires of us, the fact that he gave his Son to forgive our sins. And as a result of that, we need to repent and change our way of life and prostrate ourselves before him in this day and age and worship him as people will need to in the world tomorrow. So identity has come roaring back in the beginning part of the 20th, 21st century. I think each and every one of us who look at society today shake our head because we have suffered whiplash from the rapidity of change that's taken place in society. But you see, it's one of these movements that's taking place as people try to create their identity based on gender, ethnicity, sexual orientation, and who, who knows what else people will come up with to try and allow people to create their own identity. Just bear in mind, that's not the way in which identity is formed. How many people will end up being sexually or gender aberrant because someone has encouraged them to look at it as opposed to follow the way of life that their parents and grandparents and great-grandparents may have lived beforehand. It's one of those great mysteries of society, you might say, which we can understand because we know who is ruling this world. Obviously, this desire to have identity based on such things as gender uh, sexuality, etc., etc., will lead to historical disasters, just as nationalism, race, and class warfare ended up with major disasters. And they are, of course, a major challenge to the very institutions of which we're part at the present time, the freedoms that we have to preach the gospel. All of these freedoms that we can have at this point in time are challenged by such things. And so we should be aware of it. And so what made the biblical story so unique? What is so incredible about the biblical story is the aspect of being redeemed, of being brought back and being made to be part of the family of God. The fact is, what we're seeing here in Zechariah chapter 14 is with the help of our father and his son, you and I are being invited to change this world 
so that we'll no longer face the calamities that we have witnessed in the 20th century or face the calamities that we know we're going to face in the 21st century, however long it goes. Dr. Meredith had a favorite scripture, didn't he? Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. Consider this scripture in light of what we've been talking about. He said, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. What does it say about your identity? Our identity is from Jesus Christ. It is shaped by Jesus Christ. It is shaped by our understanding of Jesus Christ and how I live is a reflection of my relationship with Jesus Christ. I may live in a particular part of the world. I may be identified by race, by class, by all sorts of things of that nature. But Jesus Christ and the Apostle Paul are saying, there's another thing you need to be identified by, and that is the identity of Jesus Christ. We read at the Passover time the comment of Jesus Christ to the disciples. He said, by this will all men know that you are my disciples. You will be identified. Your identity will be understood by others. And How did he say that? In that you love one another as I have loved you. Interesting comment for Jesus Christ to make. Because had the disciples loved one another, I like to refer to them as being the fractious twelve. Because they're always at one another. And the gospel sets it out very, the gospel set, set it out very clearly for us. We can understand they were always concerned about themselves. They were taking care of themselves. They didn't like someone to get the edge over them. And Jesus Christ said, that's not the way you're going to be identified. You're going to be identified. You're going to be known as my disciples. In that you love one another as I have loved you. We become literally, as it says here in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. We no longer live, but Christ lives in me. My life is an expression of Jesus Christ. And a very, very important Another scripture that goes with that is Colossians chapter 3 and verse 1, where Paul told the church in Colossae, if you've been being raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Important point for us to consider and appreciate. And so our lives are shaped by the story we tell about ourselves. What is the story I tell about myself? Is it about my calling and about my relationship with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ? Is it about my desire to live in accordance with His way of life and to be an example to the rest of the world so that they understand that I am not just 
a physical human being described by physical traits, but ultimately speaking, my identity is that of Jesus Christ. And I express that every way I possibly can. So where does this take us then? Well, let's go back to the Psalms again. Psalm chapter 15. Another psalm in which David expresses this desire to be part of the tabernacle of God. Psalm chapter 15, or Psalm 15, and verse 1. My Bible says, it has a heading to it, the character of those who may dwell with the eternal. So somebody went through and sort of summarized the psalm to give a title to it. Uh, probably Thomas Nelson or uh, one of the Bible publishers. But it's described as being a psalm of David, and David says in verse 1, Eternal, who may abide in your tabernacle? Who may dwell in your holy hill? See, he had in Psalm 27 expressed a desire to dwell in the house of the eternal forever. Yes, but he also thought about what is required of me so that I can be there. It's not just one thing, not just having the desire to be there. He took the step back and said, what have I got to do? What's required of me as an individual to be part of the tabernacle of God? And so we go in verse 2, he starts providing us a list. A very poetic list. He who walks uprightly and works righteousness and speaks the truth in his heart. Okay, so three qualities of godliness. Uprightness, righteousness, and truth. They need to be part and parcel of us. Then in verse 3, he gives us Three negative quantity, qualities that should never be part of our lives. He does not backbite, backbite with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor does he take up a reproach against his friend. In other words, what should we be like? We shouldn't be backbiting. We should be seeking to build one another up, to strengthen one another. We should seek to do good to our neighbor. We overcome evil by doing good because vengeance is the eternal's. He will take care of it. Jesus Christ can take care. He can settle any issues. What we're called to do is to do good to those who do evil to us. And of course, that also means good. We do good to those who do good to us as well. In other words, we seek to do good to each and every one of our neighbors. We seek their benefit. And of course, we don't take up a reproach against a friend. We don't belittle our friends. Verse 4, he said, in whose eyes a vile person is despised. We don't accept sin. We may appreciate the person as a human being, but we certainly do not accept their behavior. In any way whatsoever. In whose eyes a vile person is despised, but he honors those who fear the eternal. 
He's not going to go out and spend his time with those who are vile. Rather, he's going to seek to spend his time with those who fear the eternal because he realizes he's going to learn or she is going to learn godly attributes from spending time with those people. Verse 4, a third aspect again, he said, he does not swear to his own hurt, or he who swears to his own hurt and does not change. Oh, you made a decision about something? You're not going to change of it. You will take the hurt yourself. Verse 5, he doesn't put out his money at usury, doesn't take a bribe against the innocent, And he said, he who does these things shall never be moved. They will be part of the tabernacle of God. They will have a part there in any way whatsoever. So here we have this this wonderful uh, psalm, which talks about the life which we're called to live today. We are called to this life today. And if we do these things, if we seek these things, then we will have a place in the tabernacle of God. We will be part of that holiness to the eternal, which will suffuse, you might say, all of Jerusalem with Christ on his throne. Matthew chapter 25, the parable of the... uh, Wise and foolish virgins. The parable of the men with the talents. And of course, the parable of the sheep and the goats. Very important in terms of understanding this. Being ready. Producing godly fruit. That produces a result in our lives. Let's go to the goat of the sheep and the goats in Matthew chapter 25. Obviously, each of the other parables in that chapter speak to the same lesson, but I'd like to focus on Matthew chapter, the the, the, uh, sheep and the goats. And so in verse 31, we're told when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then will he sit on the throne of his glory and all nations will be gathered before him and he'll separate them from one another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he'll set the sheep on his right hand and the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of the Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Come, be part of my tabernacle. Come to the dwelling place that you've desired just as David desired it. Come, be part of it. Why? Jesus said, because I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me to drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And of course, the people on the right-hand side will say, the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, I I lived in the 18th century. I lived in the 20th century. You weren't on earth when 
I lived. So how did I ever feed you? Give you water. When did we ever see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick and in prison and come to you? And the king will say, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Ah, so how do we relate to those other people that God has called? Do we see them in the right way? Do we appreciate them in the right way? Because you see, these are so important qualities to learn in our lives now. Because if we don't learn them now, when Jesus Christ comes, it is too late to learn them. It will be too late to be able to look at them and say, oh, I should have learned that. There's a preparation time going on now so that we can be at Jesus Christ's right hand. Be considered one of his sheep. That may not be a very flattering thing to consider, especially in a McNair household. I understand they were given some sheep, and their association with sheep was not very good. And I think at times the McNair household wonders, how can Jesus Christ and the Father ever think about we being focused or being described as being sheep? Well, let's be honest, Jesus Christ is described as the Lamb of God. And uh, maybe they know, uh, the Father knows a lot more about sheep than the sheep that the McNair family were given. But uh, I'm sure the McNair family would love to talk to you about their sheep. But don't make your decision about being a sheep or goat based on the McNair family sheep. Base it upon God's word. And so these things are very important for us, brethren. Because there is a desperate need for the kingdom of God to be established. You may be suffering at the present time yourself, and you can understand very much the need for the kingdom of God to come so that healing is available to people in your particular circumstance or other circumstances like that. Uh, There are many cases I go to. I see the need for the kingdom of God to be established. And it's essential for us to realize I'm now in a training ground. I'm in a training mode for the kingdom of God. And the way in which I live my life today, the way in which I live my life this week, the way in which I live my life is determining whether I will be able to live in the house of God forever. And so we find uh, that Jesus Christ turns to those on the left hand, the goats, and uh, he said, depart from me, you cursed. You haven't learned the lessons. And of course, they'll come back and say, well, but I lived in, in, in 1995. You weren't on the earth then. And Jesus Christ will give them the same answer that he gave to those on his right hand. But in this case, they didn't do it to one of the brethren. They lived their lives on their own self-identity. They're concerned about themselves. It's rather interesting if you look at a goat compared with a sheep. I've had the opportunity of looking at flocks of uh, mixed flocks of goats and sheep before today. 
A goat normally has its tail in the air. It evinces a very proud, arrogant attitude. In other words, I'm boss. The sheep, on the other hand, can never raise its tail. Of course, in most of the Western world, we cut it off. But in those areas of the world where sheep still have tails, never stands upright. The sheep always has sort of a downcast attitude or modality to itself compared with a goat. And so the goats are going to be told. Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you didn't do it to me. And he said, these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And so, as Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 22 tells us, we are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. We are being worked on at the present time so that we can be part of the structure of the tabernacle of God or the temple of God. We're being worked with at the present time so that we can actually be seated with Jesus Christ in his throne. Do we realize what it is that is happening to us at the present time? Do we realize what identity we should have? And where our identity should be hid. If we do, we, like David, will have the opportunity of being able to dwell in the house of the eternal forever. And we'll be able to welcome, we'll be able to work with those who come to Jerusalem to keep the Feast of Tabernacles, who learn to worship the eternal of hosts by prostrating themselves before him. And asking the question, how do I live my life? You and I will be given that privilege to be able to work with those people to build them up so that they also can become part of the family of God. 